0: Okay, don't skip ahead. I'm going to talk to you about climate change. And I know it can get depressing or infuriating, but our show takes a different approach. It's Laura Lynch, and I'm the host of What on Earth? And we're all about solutions and hope. And I promise, no matter how overwhelming climate change might feel, we're with you on the journey to fix this mess. So listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. This
1: is a CBC podcast. What's going on?
2: Climate justice. For those inclined, joining a climate change rally can be inspiring. But those who go also say it can be scary.
0: Move out of the way! I'm to run you over. Move out, of the, way. Move out of the way now. Move out
2: yeah, so what's the best way to speak up about climate change? And does it have to be protesting? I'm Rohit Joseph, a journalist who is trying to cover climate change without getting punched in the face. Yeah, good luck with that. And
3: I'm Johanna Wagstaff, a meteorologist who is passionate about climate change communication, but I literally could not exist without the mute button on Twitter.
2: And it's not in real life. Like, you can't just mute somebody who's coming up to you and saying, Hey, I don't like what you say.
3: I don't know why we haven't invented a mute button for life yet. Yeah, That's some Black Mirror
2: it. stuff, Joe, and we don't <laughs> want to go there.
3: No, but Speaking Up is one of the UN's suggested, recommended actions that an individual can take, one of their 10. Like most climate solutions, it's something we already know. We hear all the time talking mm-hmm. and speaking up about climate change is something you can do as an individual. But we get stuck, you know, making this part of our daily actions. Why? Because our human brains are weird and we make strange decisions, often rooted in the status quo. We get stuck thinking nothing will help. And what does speaking up even mean? And honestly, even having the UN tell me to speak up make, is like the equivalent of somebody telling me to smile more. I'm like, <laughs> don't.
2: <laughs> yeah. And our behavior expert, Ying Zhao, has something to say
1: about that. I'm Ying Zhao, but I go by Jay-Z. I'm a professor of psychology and sustainability at the University of British Columbia. So participating in rallies creates a sense of solidarity, social support, social connection. Um, every climate protest I've been to, actually people are pretty happy. They're not angry or mad. Uh, they actually, people a lot of people are smiling in those rallies. Uh, so, so I think make our voice heard by participating in these public demonstrations is helpful. But blocking the traffic, blocking the bridge, like that's actually counterproductive. I mean, I get that they want to send the signal, the, the disruptive signal to the government, but you're disrupting the people that you're trying to engage. We must have more constructive ways to protest, uh, to to bring more people on board instead of pissing people off. With an issue
2: like climate change, it's also trickier because there isn't as specific or as tangible of a demand as, let's say, same-sex marriage rallying for that. And that means it it, it can be pretty wide-ranging. So Miles Allen, the Oxford physicist who came up with the idea of net zero, well, he gets really specific about demands.
3: I mean, we, you and I, we can't get rid of carbon dioxide. I mean, don't do this in your backyard, you know, folks, because, you know, you need a, a fossil fuel company to do that. But I think the question does need to be asked, does the taxpayer really need to pay for it when these companies are making so much money anyway? So why can't we get the result, the same result, by just requiring the companies to get rid of CO2 and prove that they're getting rid of CO2 at a steadily increasing rate in order to effectively decarbonize fossil fuels across the economy? I was kind of envious that you got to talk to Miles. He's like one of my climate crushes. But I also, you know, uh, respectfully only agree halfway. I love Hmm. that there's a tangible ask in what he is saying. And I think that is so important when, you know, as an individual, we're trying to figure out what we want to achieve. So it is a very tangible ask that we put that responsibility back on the fossil fuel, uh, the fossil fuel companies. But we also have to address the systems that need to change, you know, not just take carbon out of the atmosphere but turning to green solutions means we get a chance to shake up these these systems that
2: need changing anyway it, it can seem really overwhelming especially when we're talking about system level change but guess what it is actually happening right now in indigenous communities so seven years ago West Coast environmental law started up this program it's called re revitalizing indigenous law for land air and water Basically, it gets Indigenous people to come up with their own laws to protect their territories. Here's one of the lawyers who does this work.
0: My name is Rayana Seymour Huri. I come from the Anishinaabeg Nation of Treaty 3. My community is Anishinaabeg of Neongashing, and that's Big Island. Indigenous laws you know, come from indigenous peoples themselves. It comes from their language, its languages. It's, it comes from their cultures, their songs, their ceremonies. It's really connected to their territories. And it also speaks to their inherent rights and responsibilities to their territories as well. And I think a really powerful tool and way forward is shifting the way we make decisions um, about the natural world and about how we interact with the natural world.
2: Rihanna told me about some great work that's happening in the Okanagan and Similkameen regions. They've managed to protect important areas, uh, you know, rivers that are salmon-bearing, watersheds that are crucial for the ecosystems.
0: All this work is generational, right? Um, it's not going to be done in five years or ten years. It's going to take decades. It's going to take even lifetimes. So my approach to the work is supporting as much as I can um, in the time that I have with the, the goal in mind in supporting the rights of water. And I think the rights of water are like the right to flow, you know, the right to be cold or the temperature that it needs. And when we kind of resist the rights of water, then we see those massive consequences
3: The rights of waters is something that I've heard from local Indigenous leaders here when it comes to reframing the words we use around sea level rise, you know, uh, changing retreat to accommodate Mm. and reframing who the center is uh, in 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 that in that balance? Such a, a different worldview than than I grew up with. Row with when it comes to our relationships with the natural world. Mm. You know, as a as a Hungarian, all w- there was a lot of pride in, in our folklore and you know tales and songs about being a Hungarian. But the takeaway message was basically like, don't steal the cookies or we're gonna boil you in a pot. <laughs> like it was very extreme. So there, there's, a, there's a lot intense. to learn here. But how can an individual, you know, emulate this sense of community in their own neighborhood, you know, on a city scale, a, a neighborhood block, an apartment building. Well, I've got I've got some studies I, I want to share with you, Rohit, yeah. obviously. Let's get into uh, it. Let's get into it. Penn State University actually conducted a study to test the impacts of two back to back highly visible, large-scale climate change-related marches and what that impact was on people watching. And they got these people to fill out a survey ahead of time and then a few days after attending these marches. And the results found that these people were actually impacted by just watching these climate change marches. They felt like, as an individual, they had more power to make big change than they did before watching this march. Now, the study also found that the political uh, leaning of these citizens was also a huge factor. So, you know, in many cases, these were people already on the fence and watching the march just sort of spurred them to jump in. We're going to circle back on where we started. And it's probably, you know, the big tangible
1: takeaway. Here's Jay-Z. Go vote because, you know, your vote matters just as much as everybody else's vote.
2: I mean, it had to come up, voting. It had to come up. <laughs> um, I, you know what, though? There's still going to be people who are like, I voted and I feel like it didn't make a difference. And all right, that's why we've laid out some options here. The takeaway that I'm having from from our discussion, Joe, is that there are options and different ways you can speak up about climate change. And you have to also realize that when it comes to speaking up, you're not always going to get immediate results. And th- that's, that's the thing. You have to reframe your way of thinking. Even climate change coaches, that's a thing. They say you have to start thinking about, uh, instead of you know, feeling like there's not enough time, I don't have enough influence. Think about it as you're making a start. You're starting to make a difference. Mm. So there you go. You know, Some days I'm going to feel like I don't want to talk to my neighbor about installing that heat pump. It's all about what can you do in your capacity to speak up.
3: And I've got to say, Roeth, I've attended three different UN climate change conferences around the world. All right. Uh, stop flexing, Joe. I know, right? It's my time here <laughs> at the CBC. Uh, and you know what? Yes, these COPs are about signing papers, uh, making these big global agreements. But for me, the biggest takeaway attending these conferences is the feeling of joy and camaraderie that I get to see In young people coming together. That's what inspires me. It's the young people, Rohith. Give me the blood of the young people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right there. Just
3: kidding. And that's 10 minutes before things get creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Too late. You've been listening to 10 Minutes to Save the Planet from CBC Podcasts. The show is written and hosted by Rohith Joseph and me, Johanna Wagstaff. Our producer is Teresa Lalonde. Sound design by Jill Constantine.
2: Fabiola Carletti is our digital coordinating producer, with assistance by Sean Lloyd. Our managing producer is Damon Fairless. Executive producers are Cecil Fernandez and Chris Oak. Tanya Springer is the senior manager of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Nurani is the director.
0: For more CBC podcasts, go to CBC.ca/podcasts.